Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for only the biggest of businesses. For a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is now giving away a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It should be another scary weekend for investors given the ugly close on Friday. In fact, it was a brutal way not only to finish the week, But the month of April, particularly the NASDAQ composite, the tech wreck continues unabated. In fact, I have been particularly vocal in my warnings, even before this year began, about the impact you were going to see in the tech stocks from rising interest rates and higher inflation. I had repeatedly warned that these stocks were particularly vulnerable to this new dynamic that investors would not be willing to pay these sky-high multiples for future earnings in a higher interest rate environment, especially where inflation was eroding away the value of those future earnings. And so I saw early on that the rotation had already begun out of those high-growth names into more value-oriented dividend-paying stocks. But on Friday, the Nasdaq Composite dropped 4.4% in one day. In fact, the losses were so great on that day that they wiped out all of the rather substantial gains from earlier in the week. In fact, that was the case with all of the major indexes. They were on track for a positive weekly close until Friday more than wiped out all of those gains. Now, on the week, the NASDAQ was only down 3.9% due to those earlier gains, but for the month, it was down 7.3%. That is the worst month for the NASDAQ 
since November of 2008. Think about that. What was going on in November of 2008? That was the 2008 financial crisis. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns bankruptcies, the collapse of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? The greatest recession since the Great Depression was just beginning, and that's the last time the NASDAQ had a month this bad. But it actually gets worse because on the year, the NASDAQ is down 17% during those first four months. This is the worst first four months for any year in the history of the NASDAQ. The records only go back to 1971, but this is the worst start to a year, including 1971. So we had a brutal bear market during the stagflationary decade of the 1970s, yet we just had a first four months of the year that was worse than any four months going back to 1971. In fact, now the NASDAQ is down 23.4% from its high, moving deeper into official bear market territory. Of course, some of the biggest losers are the names that Americans own the most, the FANG stocks. I have been talking about FANG being defanged. I've been warning about these stocks. And one by one, they get taken out behind the barn and shot. The latest debacle on Friday was Amazon. Amazon is the A in FANG. They released their earnings disappointing earnings. Stock was down over 14% on the day, and it's now off 34% from its high. It's in a bear market. You know, the last time I went over the FANG stocks, only two of the FANG stocks were in a bear market, and I said it wouldn't be long before all four were, and now all of the FANG stocks have been defanged. They are in bear markets. And of course, the bear market for Amazon, as far as I'm concerned, is just getting started because Americans are broke. Amazon makes money selling products, of course, not just to Americans all over the world, but consumers are broke. They're spending too much money on food. They're spending too much money on gas. Most people don't buy their groceries and their gas on Amazon. They buy other things on Amazon and they don't have any money left over after they pay for food and energy, after they pay for their rent. So there's not going to be as much spending. So Amazon can't make as much money. They can't sell as much stuff. And whatever they do sell, it's going to cost a lot more to ship it because the transportation costs are going up. So I think their whole business model is in trouble. I think this stock has been a bubble for a long time. And I think it's finally pricked and there's a lot of air yet to come out. You know, a lot of people on Friday were talking about maybe this is the bottom. Should we try to nibble here? Look at a chart of Amazon. We're not anywhere near the bottom. We're still very close to the top. I mean, if you zoom out and look at that chart, you barely notice this 34% decline. It is a long way down. Anybody who thinks there's a bottom in Amazon is dreaming, but it just shows you the mentality, this buy the dip mentality. Investors are wedded to this because it's worked for so long. They're like the deer in the headlight. They have no idea what they're being hit by. But taking a look at the other FANG stocks, just to put this in perspective, the F in FANG is Facebook. And even though it's now called Meta, it still has the symbol of FB. So the F is face. Facebook is down 48%. And that's despite that big rise earlier in the week on an earnings beat. It would be down a lot more if it wasn't for that. Google 
also missed on earnings this week. So it's now down 25%. It's actually the best performing of the FANG stocks because it's down the least. But the worst performer is Netflix. Netflix is now down 73% from its peak. So this is brutal. But again, these are the stocks that most Americans own. They're loaded up on these stocks because they went up so much in the past. Everybody was investing in the rear view mirror instead of looking through the windshield at what lied ahead. And so this is particularly significant for the reverse wealth effect as a lot of Americans watch their stock market wealth go up in smoke. Now, moving on to the S&P on a whole, it also had a brutal day down 3.6%. And that resulted in a weekly loss of 3.3%. On the month, S&P 500 down 8.8% for the first four months of this year, year to date, down 13%. Now that is the worst four months start to any year since 1939. I'm not making that up. 1939, during the Great Depression. You have to go to the Depression to find a four-month period at the beginning of a year where the S&P 500 did as poorly as it just did. Think about that. Let that set in for what that portends. Now, from its highs, the S&P 500 is down 14.3%. And of course, none of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. Think about that. The stock market is dropping, but prices are rising. So in real terms, adjusted for the CPI, these losses are far greater than the nominal losses that I'm talking about right now. Now, the Dow Jones also got clobbered, 939-point drop on Friday, 2.8% on the day, bringing the weekly loss to 2.5%. The Dow is down 5% on the month and 9.2% on the year. Now, the Dow is holding up better than any of these other indexes because the Dow has more stocks that would be considered value or dividend-paying stocks. Not that I see a lot of value in the Dow just on a relative basis relative to the S&P or the NASDAQ. It does have value, and that's why this is only the worst start to a year for the Dow since 2020, and of course, that was bad because of COVID. The Dow is now down 10.8% from its high, so just in correction territory, even though the NASDAQ is clearly in bear market territory. But it's interesting that the weakest index is actually not even the NASDAQ. It's the Russell 2000. It was down 2.8% on the day, down 4% on the week, 10% on the month. And though it's only down 11.5% on the year, it's down 24.2% from last year's high. So the decline in the Russell 2000 from its high point is actually greater than the decline in the NASDAQ. So this is significant, again, because the Russell 2000 is more reflective of the domestic U.S. economy. You don't have a lot of big multinational companies in the Russell 2000. So if you're looking for an indication of the strength of the U.S. economy and you're looking at the stock market, the best index to look at is the Russell 2000, and that is the worst performing index, which should cause a lot of people who have this rosy view of the U.S. economy to question their assumptions.
In addition to the route on Wall Street on Friday, we also got some bad economic news. I don't even know how much this news even impacted the market. The market probably was going to go down anyway. And most of the economic news is bad. Nobody is talking about it. Everybody is rationalizing it like they did with the horrific GDP numbers the other day. I went over that on the last podcast where they tried to claim that the collapsing GDP was masking a strong recovery. Talk about doublespeak, that reached a new high or a new low, depending on your perspective of propaganda, it's Wall Street spin. But look at these personal income and spending numbers for the month of March. The way the media portrays them, you might think it's good news, but it's actually disaster. So for the month of March, personal incomes rose by 05 And that was a little bit better than the 0.4% that had been expected. And in fact, the prior month's gain of 0.5 was revised up to 0.7. So incomes were up a little bit more than expected. And in fact, in the month of February, we were told that incomes were up more than we were originally told. Now, you might think that was good news. Incomes are up 0.5. But take a look at prices. According to the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, prices were up 0.9 on the month. Well, wait a minute. If incomes were up 0.5, but prices were up 0.9, that means real incomes were down 0.4. So it's not good news. Sure, incomes went up, but not as much as prices. So real incomes went down. People's standard of living is falling. And of course, they went down by more than 0.4 because of all the ways the government measures inflation. I think the PCE is the most dishonest, meaning that I think that index understates inflation more than any other measure, which is why it's the Fed's favorite index, because it wants to look at an inflation index that most understates inflation so it can pretend that inflation isn't a problem, so it can keep on creating more inflation. So if we tried to adjust those personal income numbers by a more realistic measure of what's actually happening to prices, we would see an even bigger decline in real income. You know, Americans would be better off if incomes had been down 0.5% and prices had been down 0.9%. That would be better than incomes going up. But all these economists, they always want to pretend that the worst thing that can happen is that prices go down. We want prices to go up because that's good for the economy. And the same thing with incomes or wages. We want higher wages. Higher wages are good. They're not good. Not if prices go up more. You see, what counts is not how much you're paid, but how much you can buy. It's the difference between what you earn and what you spend that counts. And so if wages are falling, but prices are falling even more, that's a good thing because workers are better off. Their real incomes are going up. And also in a world where prices are falling, the value of your savings is going up. So if you're a worker and you're earning money and then you're saving some money, you're better off if prices go down because now you can buy more with your savings. And even if your wages are going down, but your cost of living is going down faster, you are better off. The government is convincing everybody through their propaganda campaign that falling prices are horrible, falling wages are horrible, we need wages to go up, we need prices to go up. Meanwhile, nobody notices that, yeah, prices are going up, 
Wages are going up, but wages are going up more than prices. So you're working more, but you're falling further and further behind because of this mindset that we have to avoid deflation at all costs. We can't let prices go down. We can't let wages go down. And so both wages and prices go up, but prices go up more than wages and people are worse off. It's the government that is worse off if wages go down. If wages go down and prices go down more, Workers are better off, but the government gets lower taxes. They collect less taxes, especially if you fall into a lower tax bracket. So the government wants bigger numbers so it can collect more taxes. But bigger numbers don't matter to individuals. What matters is real purchasing power, real wages. And right now, real wages are collapsing. And look at the personal consumption index, personal spending, that blew away expectations. They were looking for a gain of 0.6, which would have followed the 0.2 gain in February. February's number was raised to up 0.6, and the March number came out at up 1.1. So that is a huge increase in monthly consumer spending. But where did it come from? It didn't come from income because income was up 0.5, spending was up 1.1. It came from savings. Consumers dipped into their savings. The savings rate is now almost at a nine-year low. And before this year is over, the savings rate is going to hit an all-time record low because consumers are dipping into a very shallow saving pool to try to keep their economic necks above water as prices are going up. And this is what's happening with consumer spending. Maybe the media is reporting, whoa, this is a strong economy. Consumer spending is up 1.1%. Yeah, but prices are up 0.9. That means real spending is only up 0.2, but prices being up 0.9 is a fantasy. They're up much more than that. And so spending is actually down. People are buying less stuff. They're just paying more for their stuff they're buying. And because they're paying so much more for food and energy and rent and insurance and stuff like that, they don't have enough money left over to go shopping on Amazon, which is why Amazon reported such bad earnings, why the share price is collapsing and why it's got a lot more downside because there's so much more upside to prices that consumers are not going to be able to spend like they did before. They're not going to have the purchasing power that they once had. In fact, looking at these PCE numbers, the year-over-year increase was 6.6. I mean, these are the highest numbers we've seen in the year-over-year increase in these numbers. And I don't know, 30 or 40 years, whatever it is. If you strip out food and energy, though, you look at the core PCE, we were up 03 on the month and year over year we're up 5.2 which is actually not as bad as the prior month which was originally reported as up 5.4 and now it was revised up 5.3 but the core strips out food and energy it makes no sense to strip out food and energy food and energy are the most important part of a family's budget especially on a year-over-year basis i've mentioned this on the podcast before but i'll say it again Looking at year-over-year core makes no sense. The whole logic for trying to exclude food and energy and to look at the core is to smooth out volatility. Well, volatility is a monthly thing. If prices are up year-over-year, that's not volatility, that's a trend. And the reality is food and energy, that should be the core because that's the core of everybody's spending. That's the most important thing. You need food, you need power. You need gasoline to drive your car. You need to heat your home. You need to cool your home. You need to feed yourself and your family. 
That's the core. Yet somehow the government says, oh, forget about that because, you know, who really cares about food and energy? Let's just focus on everything else. You know, at some point, Americans are going to spend all of their money on food and energy. They're not going to buy anything else because they're not going to have any money left over after they finish paying for food and energy. You got to love that sound. It's the sound of another sale being made on Shopify. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce program to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving you the resources once reserved just for big business. And it's all customized for you with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. In fact, one of the things I love best about Shopify is how easy it makes it for anyone to successfully run their own small business. As someone who's run several small businesses myself, I know firsthand how valuable that is. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started now by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience required. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Gain knowledge and confidence with resources that help you succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities, and they are powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com slash gold, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash gold right now. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We also got the Chicago PMI for April. Another miss. The consensus was for 61.3. We got 56.4, a huge miss. Look at the range of expectations for Chicago PMI from 61 on the low side to 62.2. We're nowhere close to the low end of the expected range. This was another bad number. So we're getting bad economic numbers showing a slowing economy, yet the inflation numbers continue to heat up and the Fed continues to be on track for a 50 or a 75 basis point rate hike at their upcoming meeting. Now, if you think about all what's going on, you combine this weak economic data, especially the weakness in real personal incomes and spending, the collapse of the savings rate. Look at what's happened with home mortgage rates recently, which is really going to be destroying purchasing power. A lot of people are going to see their adjustable rate mortgages reset. Nobody has the lifeline available anymore of a mortgage refi That's been completely shut down. Combine that with the negative print for Q1 GDP and not a small number, minus 1.4. That's solidly in negative territory. You've got the record trade deficits that are only going to get bigger. You have all this bad news coming out, yet the Fed is still confident that it can raise interest rates without a recession. How can anybody look at the economic data? Look at the weakness in the stock market 
especially if you consider that so much of the economy is based on the wealth effect. In fact, the very justification for quantitative easing was to create a recovery built on the wealth effect. The Fed stated that, that the purpose of QE was to lift asset prices, to make stock prices go up, to make real estate prices go up. Well, not only are stock prices not going up, they're coming down at rates that we haven't seen other than the Great Recession of 2008 or the Great Depression. It is brutal. So people are watching their stock market wealth evaporate. Now, some people still have wealth in their housing. House prices are still way up. But how long can that last? At some point, housing prices have to come down too. Nobody can afford to buy these houses. And interest rates are going up. Mortgage rates are going up. So the reverse wealth effect is here it's going to get worse but we're halfway to a recession how can you ignore a negative print for q1 gdp and assume that that's impossible for q2 when no one even expected it in q1 yet they were surprised by a negative number well what if they're surprised again what if the second quarter is also negative we're in recession right now yet the fed is continuing to hike interest rates in a recession what does that mean for the recession, for the severity of a recession if the Fed is hiking during the recession, right? That's gonna make the recession worse. If it's already this bad and we've got interest rates at 0.25%, how much worse is it gonna be when interest rates are higher? I mean, it seems amazing to me that people are so oblivious to the risk of recession and how the Fed could be so confident given how bad the numbers already are that rate hikes aren't going to cause a recession because the economy is so much stronger today than it's ever been in the past or at any other time when the Fed has been hiking rates when objectively, just looking at the data, it's never been this week. The only thing you can point to for economic strength is the low unemployment rate. That's it. But you know what? When you have a really low unemployment rate, there's only one way it can go, and that's up. And we could have a change in employment very quickly Again, if the stock market is crashing and so many companies that lose money were depending on stock market gains to pay their workers, and now they don't have stock market gains, so they can't attract investors to fund their burn rates and they're out of money, there are going to be major layoffs. They are coming. We are very, very close to a huge increase in the unemployment rate. And that's just going to be the final nail in the coffin, because once we see that, the recession is pretty much insured. There's no way to avoid it. And of course, by then it'll be too late. But the question is, what will the Fed do? Is the Fed going to ignore that recession? In fact, a severe recession and keep on hiking rates? Or is it going to ignore inflation and focus on the recession and start cutting rates? In fact, they haven't even started quantitative tightening yet. Yes, I looked at the balance sheet for the most recent week and there was a very slight reduction. The balance sheet dropped by $16.7 billion on the week. But that's a drop in the bucket if the Fed is actually going to follow through with what it has committed to doing with respect to shrinking its balance sheet, especially if it wants to start front-loading that reduction because it's so far behind the curve. So if the markets are this week, with the Fed barely reducing its balance sheet, imagine how much weaker these markets could be when the Fed picks up the pace. 
In fact, if you look at the mindset of so many investors, or in particular, the Federal Reserve, I don't know I've ever seen the FOMC so clueless to economic reality. I mean, this dwarfs anything leading up to the 2008 financial crisis when Ben Bernanke was claiming that we didn't have to worry about subprime, that it was contained. Or even more recently, when Jerome Powell or Janet Yellen were saying, don't worry about inflation because it's transitory, saying not to worry about the economy or not to worry about the rate hikes because the economy is so strong, it can withstand it when it's so objectively not strong, when all the warning signs are flashing, weakness, weakness, weakness. Now, of course, I'm not saying the Fed shouldn't hike rates because the economy is weak. It should. In fact, it should have hiked them a long time ago. The reason it didn't is because it knew the economy wasn't strong enough to withstand it. Well, if it wasn't strong enough in the past, it sure as hell ain't strong enough now. And since they waited so long to raise rates, they have to raise them even more to be effective, which they can't. Because that they could, they would have already done it. That's why they didn't. So all of this is a bluff. Yes, they're going to have to raise some rates because they're trying to delay the loss of credibility. But ultimately, they're not going to deliver the tough medicine that the markets expect, which is what is creating a tremendous opportunity in the markets because what investors expect to happen is not going to happen. And so those wrong expectations are built into prices, particularly when it comes to the exchange rate for the dollar or the price of gold or any investments that might be tied to gold, that is what is creating the opportunity. And the only reason that opportunity exists is because so many investors are clueless. Let's talk about Athletic Greens, something I recently started taking every day. My goal was better gut health, and I wanted more energy. And with just one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, I'm absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. The special blend of ingredients supports gut health, the nervous system, the immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And now, Athletic Greens is offering a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash Peter. Since I first started using the product, I've really grown to enjoy the taste and look forward to a glass every morning. So I would encourage everybody to give it a try. Athletic Greens is lifestyle-friendly. So whether you're eating keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, Athletic Greens will work for you. And every time you purchase more Athletic Greens, the company will donate a portion of the revenues to help get nutritional food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. In fact, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020 alone. Now is the time to reclaim your health and secure your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the cold and flu season. All that's required is one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look and feel your best. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com Peter. Again, that's athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and to pick up your your ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, probably the most clueless of all the investors is Kathy Wood, right? Talking about the blind leading the blind. She is the guru of the modern era of meme investing, right? Just 
mindless investing, just buying anything. You know, I talked about the big collapse in Teladoc, which was the number two position in the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, which, by the way, was down 10% on the week, 29% on the month. It's down 50% so far this year and 70% from its high. So she is the most celebrated portfolio manager in the country and her flagship fund is down 70% from its high. Yet somehow on CNBC, they roll out the red carpet and they still treat her like she's the queen of investing and she's done nothing wrong. Because I watched her interviewed yesterday to kind of talk about what's going on. And the host that was interviewing her, and I forget his name, wasn't very critical. I mean, still just treating her as if really nothing bad had happened. Yes, they acknowledged the fact that stocks went down. They talked about Teladoc. This was the first time I think she had a chance to talk about it. Teladoc is down 42% on the week, 53% on the month, 63% on the year. And get this, the stock is down 89% from last year's high. The stock was as high as 308 last year. It closed Friday at $33.76. She's ridden this stock down close to 90%. It was the number two stock in her portfolio. It's now significantly lower than that because of how much value it lost. But of course, all of her stocks are losing value. So it's all relative. But this one lost more than most. And so it's not nearly as big, but it's still a big holding because that's how much she had. But she was talking about this stock and she's still not even admitting that it was a mistake to buy it. She's still excited about this stock. She thinks it's the next Amazon. Why? I mean, first of all, an Amazon is a very rare thing to happen. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of would-be Amazons, but she was comparing this stock to the early days of Amazon and just assumes that this stock is going to be just as successful. Well, I don't see any basis for this assumption. I mean, she makes believe like she has some new kind of investment strategy that she has these analysts and they take into account all sorts of things that other people don't take into account. I think this is all a bunch of nonsense. I just think this is part of the hype. I mean, if she can sit back and watch one of her favorite companies, her second biggest position, go down by 90%, who's to say that other stocks that are down 40 and 50 and 60% aren't going to go down 90%? Who says that this stock that's down 90% isn't going to go down 95%? And that means it's still a 50% drop from here, and it could go down even more than that. All of these stocks could keep going down. She is clueless. I mean, talk about going down with the ship. Talk about being in denial. She is falling in love with these stocks. She has fell in love with herself. She has no objectivity. She should not be managing money. And people are going to lose a fortune following her. In fact, one of the reasons that I'm so confident that there's so much downside left in the stocks that she owns is because so few of her investors have abandoned ship. She's going down with the ship as the captain, but the entire crew is going down with her. I mean, the faithful haven't lost faith, especially when you have all this time on CNBC where they give her this microphone to speak and this podium and nobody criticizes her. And yes, I'm a deep value investor and this is less risky than the indexes and we're going to make all this money and she gets to talk on and on and on. People are not throwing in the towel. Now, eventually they will. Eventually there's going to be massive liquidations from this fund. 
And if people want their money back, well, Kathy Wood has to sell these stocks to get their money. And if they're this week and nobody has even taken their money back, Wood isn't even selling. In fact, she's still buying. In fact, I think she was buying Teladoc right into the bad earnings. So if she has to stop buying these stocks and start selling them, if these stocks are this week without probably the biggest shareholder selling, imagine what's going to happen when she starts to sell. In fact, one of the things she was talking about is how most of the stocks they own, they don't have a lot of analyst coverage or they don't have any analyst coverage. And it's only her analysts that cover them. And I think that that might be part of her strategy to cover stocks that are on nobody's radar because then nobody can come out and say anything bad about them. I mean, why is it that nobody else is covering these stocks? Maybe because they're just scams. Maybe because if anybody else covered the stocks, they'd put sell ratings on them. Maybe if they had some actual analysts who knew what they were doing and they actually looked into these companies, they would see there was nothing there. So she wants to make sure that she buys stocks that nobody else is looking at it because then no one else can come out and contradict what her team is saying. So it makes it easier for her to buy these stocks and tout these stocks. And because nobody else is invested, she can, I think, manipulate them more by putting her own money into the stocks that she's buying and having the whole thing become this vicious cycle where she pumps up her stocks, they go up, her performance is good, the good performance causes people to send money in, the funds get more money, which allows her to buy more of these stocks, pushing their price up higher, and the whole thing feeds on itself. Meanwhile, there's nobody else calling out these BS companies. But the problem is this whole process is going to reverse and that hasn't even started because these stocks are collapsing and the investors haven't even asked for their money back yet. Once they ask for their money back, it ain't going to be there. They're not going to be able to get their money back. They're only going to be able to get what's left over after these stocks are sold. But when Kathy Wood starts selling, who the hell's going to start buying? Who's going to buy them? She's the only one buying them. She basically said that. Maybe the only other people who are buying them are people who probably shadow her on Robinhood. And by the way, Robinhood also reported bad earnings on Friday. The stock was only down 3% because it had been down so much before. It did make a new low before recovering. The stock traded as low as $9 even before settling at $9.81. But $9 was a new all-time low, almost 90% below its high price from last year. The stock, based on where it closed, is down 88.5% from its 2021 high. And by the way, Robinhood is in the ARK Innovation ETF portfolio. So it's one of Kathy Wood's favorite stocks, and it's another stock that she's written down nearly 90%. But why did Robinhood have bad earnings? For the precise reason that I predicted they would have bad earnings months and months ago on the podcast. The reason they're not making as much money is because their customers have lost so much money. Their customers are broke because their customers were chasing mean stocks. They were gambling in options and they lost all their money. I mean, they still have some left, but a lot of it has been lost. And if you bankrupt your customers, how much money can you make from a bunch of bankrupt customers? I pointed this out that the business model was doomed to fail because their customers were going to lose money because they didn't know what they were doing. And in fact, Robinhood's very platform gamified investing, made it easy to gamble. A lot of inexperienced people that had no business trading options were trading options and predictably they lost all their money. But as they were losing all their money, 
Robin Hood made money because they got the commissions. It's like the Dukes in trading places. Whether our customers make money or lose money, Robin Hood gets the commission. Although with Robin Hood, they didn't even get the commissions because they were losing money. They weren't even charging commissions. They were giving away free trades and they were selling the order flow, but they were trying to generate volume to get the order flow. They were suckering in customers. They weren't even making money. They were losing money. At least the Dukes made money. These guys lost money and now their clients are broke. And there's another big problem that I forecast at the same time that I was talking about how Robinhood's future was bleak based on how much money I knew their customers were going to lose. But because I knew their customers were going to lose so much money, I also thought that those very customers were going to sue to get their money back. I mean, that is typical on Wall Street. Heads I win, tails I sue the brokerage firm because the trades were unsuitable. They should have stopped me. They should have warned me. They had a duty to stop me from throwing my money away. They should have made sure I knew more before they allowed me to trade options. They should have seen that I was losing too much money. They should have cut me off. And whether or not these cases have merit or not, they're still going to get filed. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of contingency lawyers out there who are going to see this and they're probably going to be frothing at the mouth and they're going to go after Robin Hood. And I think there's certainly a case there. I mean, they can easily make one based on their marketing campaign, based on their website, but it doesn't even matter if they have a case. How much is it going to cost Robin Hood to defend itself against all of these FINRA arbitration because they have millions of customers and all those customers are going to be in the same boat. They all will have lost a ton of money and they're going to be looking to Robin Hood to get it back. And if they have to start settling all these cases because they're all small, most of them, and it costs at least 50 grand, maybe more to defend yourself in a single arbitration, they could have millions Normally, a lot of firms like to settle these things, maybe write a check, five or $10,000. But with all the customers they have, those little checks are going to add up to a lot of money. And so all of that is going to add up to even heavier losses for Robinhood. And of course, ARK Innovation ETF investors who also own shares in Robinhood. In fact, some of the biggest losers are stocks that are in the portfolio of Kathy Wood. You know, look at crypto, because one of the things that Kathy Wood was bragging about getting right, in addition to Tesla, and she was an early investor in Tesla, and it's still her number one holding, even though I think Tesla is in jeopardy of going down. In fact, Elon Musk just sold a bunch of stock in order to free up money to buy Twitter. Maybe he thinks that there's less downside risk in Twitter than there is in Tesla. And maybe this is just an excuse for him to sell Tesla because he's saying, well, I didn't really want to sell it. I needed the money to buy Twitter. If he just sold his Tesla without buying Twitter, maybe investors would have been nervous and thought about selling too. But now you can say, well, he didn't want to sell. He had to sell. Well, he didn't have to sell because he didn't have to buy Twitter. Maybe he wanted to buy Twitter to make an excuse for selling Tesla. But the risk now with Tesla is that he didn't sell enough and that Elon Musk is now margining his Tesla shares. He's taking out a loan. And who's to say that the shares of Tesla won't drop 70, 80, 90 percent and trigger a margin call, which would be a disaster for the share price if Musk's stock was forced sold into such a weak market. And that's going to be another huge problem for Kathy Wood and her ETF and her other funds that probably own Tesla. But she also bragged about having gotten into Bitcoin early. 
And her exposure to Bitcoin, I guess in her fund or main one, is owning shares of both Coinbase and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Well, let's take a look at those two stocks. How is she doing on those? Because she's bragging about having gotten into Bitcoin early. Well, she didn't get out. I mean, yes, she got in early, but she stayed at the party too long. I mean, that's obvious. The question is, is she ever going to leave this party? But Coinbase was down 8% on Friday. One day, 8%. Down 14.3% on the week. Down 40% on the month. And down 55% year-to-date. 70% from last year's high. I think this is a top five holding in the ARK Innovation ETF. And I've been talking about this on this podcast because I've been watching shares of Coinbase go down, 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 making new low after new low, a new record low on Friday. This is a leading indicator for a huge problem with crypto and Bitcoin. And it's a problem that the hodlers are oblivious to. They refuse to recognize this. Again, talk about deer in the headlight. All these hodlers are staring at a Mack truck that's about to run them over and yet they're clueless because they're so wedded. They're so indoctrinated into the cult of Bitcoin that no matter how much evidence they see to contradict what they believe, you know, like cognitive dissonance, they built up a wall and none of it gets in, right? It's all being dismissed despite all of this clear evidence because one of the reasons too that Robinhood is so weak, what was one of the big things on Robinhood? Their customers were creating crypto. It's not just stocks. They were able to trade cryptocurrencies and they're getting their asses handed to them in crypto too. And in fact, I mentioned on the last podcast that Fidelity is trying to open up Bitcoin to their retirement accounts, 401ks, and to the extent that any companies actually bite and allow their employees to gamble up to 20% of their retirement money on nothing, they're opening up themselves to lawsuits too. But it's not just Coinbase, which is an exchange that's going down. I mean, the miners are getting obliterated. I mean, look at anything related to crypto mining or blockchain. But the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which I have talked about a lot on this podcast, that was down 5.2% on Friday, down 6% on the week, 14% on the month, 23% year to date, and it's down 55% from last year's high. Again, another holding in the ARK Innovation ETF. And as I'm speaking and recording this podcast on Saturday morning, Bitcoin is trading at 38,500. So it hasn't really collapsed yet. But if you look at this chart, it is potentially ominous. Again, in addition to the leading indicators of the weakness in crypto-related stocks, which should be stronger, Because these crypto stocks are a bet on Bitcoin's future. And if the bets on Bitcoin's future are going bad, what does that tell you about Bitcoin itself? They are leading indicators. The money is leaving the sector. The only money that's coming in is the dumb money. The smart money, and I'm saying smart in a sense that they got in early and hyped it up. But the smart money is getting out. I see tremendous evidence of that going on. It's the dumbest of the dumb money that's getting in and is taking the most ridiculous asinine statements to get them in. And that's why they now have the celebrities, the singers, the athletes that are trying to convince their followers because they've run out of all the intelligent, thoughtful investors. Now they just need to appeal to the masses on Instagram and TikTok and get those guys into Bitcoin. But once they're in, 
everybody's in, the boat's fully loaded, and there's only one way for the market to go, and that's down. But there's another stock debacle that I wanted to talk about, and somehow Kathy Wood managed to avoid owning this one, and it's Carvana. And this particular company is very typical of the problems I've been warning about that the Fed helped create by inflating this bubble, and now it's all being exposed. As the Fed is pricking the bubble and the air is coming out, Carvana shares plunged another 10% on Friday, and that capped a horrific week for the stock. It dropped 30%. In fact, for the month of April, the stock was cut in half, losing 50% of its value. It's now down 85% from its 2021 peak. It was another one of those darling stay-at-home COVID stocks. A lot of people were buying it. After all, their business model is that they sell used cars online. So during the days of COVID, people are sheltering at home, but they want a new car. They're afraid to go to the dealership, or maybe some of the dealerships weren't even open because everybody was quarantined. So you can stay at home and buy a used car. And as a result, just like so many other stay-at-home stocks, investors bid up the shares. But the problem is used car prices went way up, And now the cost of borrowing money to buy used cars has also gone way up. So their sales are falling because customers can't afford to buy the cars. But what's more important now for Carvana, they can't afford to service their debt. They've got over $3 billion of debt that needs to be financed. They're not making any money. This whole house of cards is imploding. And in fact, the only way they'll probably avoid bankruptcy would be some kind of restructuring in a debt for equity swap where the holders of these junk bonds would turn them in and get stock. But the problem for the existing stockholders is going to be massive dilution based on the likely terms for the debt-to-equity swap. So most of the current equity will likely get wiped out, leaving investors, including some big hedge funds, with huge losses. But it's not just the investors who are going to lose. I'm sure there'll be a lot of layoffs associated with trying to downsize the company and try to stop the bleeding so that the people who swapped their debt for equity have a better chance of generating return. But all of this is an example of malinvestments that occurred during the bubble because money was borrowed that never would have been borrowed. Investments were financed that probably couldn't have got capital but for the Fed's artificially low interest rates. Well, now that the Fed is removing that support, everything that was built on top of it is coming crashing down. You know, Warren Buffett has an old saying about when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Clearly, Carvana and all of its investors were skinny dipping, and now that fact has been laid bare for all to see. But let me turn my attention to some other markets, in particular, the U.S. dollar, which though it was down on Friday, had another big up week, another big up month. In fact, year to date, the dollar index is up 7%, despite all the indication of a weak economy and all the indication that there's no way the Fed is going to be able to do what it's claiming it's going to do, the dollar is up anyway. I think a lot of that probably has to do with Russia and the Ukraine. And that's why I said earlier that this was a gift to the United States because it is delaying the day of reckoning. It's putting the focus on Europe and Europeans who are worried about the impact on their economy are going to the dollar. And these traders, for some reason, they can't see beyond what's immediately in their face, which is the Fed hiking rates. They can't look beyond that to what's going to happen next. They're just focusing on, hey, the Fed is the only central bank that's talking about raising rates, even though 
all the central banks have inflation problems, particularly in Japan. The weakness in the Japanese yen in particular, which is unprecedented, is also working to prop up the dollar because of all the money coming out of the Japanese yen. Imagine what would be going on in the U.S. stock market if the Bank of Japan was doing the right thing and raising interest rates instead of doing the wrong thing, continuing to print Japanese yen to keep interest rates artificially low. But this is not going to go on indefinitely. The Bank of Japan is going to be forced to adjust its policy. They clearly don't want to, but ultimately the markets will give them no choice. They will have to. And when they do, the dollar is really going to start going down and that's going to usher in a whole new set of problems because if the U.S. markets are this weak with a strong dollar, imagine how much weaker they're going to be with a weak dollar. Now, they may get a temporary boost if the dollar weakens because the Fed finally gives up and has to do an official pivot. You will probably get an initial spike in the U.S. stock market, but believe me, that's not good news because inflation is going to continue to get worse and it's going to continue to erode away the value of these overpriced momentum stocks. Now, the value dividend-oriented stocks, they may enter into new bull markets in that environment, but unfortunately, those are not the stocks that most Americans own. The stocks that most Americans own are going to keep going down even if the Fed does do an about-face and starts cutting rates and going back to QE. Because when they did it in the past, there was no inflation. When they do it in the future, there's going to be massive inflation. And that is a game-changer. And talk about inflation, look at the price of gold was actually flat on the day, but down on the week. Gold lost about $35 on the week. Gold should have gained on this week with all this bad economic news, yet the markets are still oblivious to that and they're laser focused on rate hikes coming by the Fed in the month of May. We all know that. And in fact, May, which is starting on Monday, this is again when the Fed is supposed to start doing quantitative tightening. And for some reason, the gold traders are scared and so they're selling gold lost about two percent over the month of april but year to date gold prices are still up they're up three and a half percent but of course the price of everything else is up much more than three and a half percent so adjusted for inflation gold is falling but why is everything going up except gold well i guess you can throw in silver because silver's not going up either because you've got these precious metals that are supposed to be inflation hedges And they're not going up because everybody thinks there's no reason to hedge inflation because the Fed's going to kill it off. The Fed's going to fight inflation with rate hikes. And why do the markets believe that? Well, because the Fed told them that. Why do they believe the Fed? I got no idea. The Fed has no credibility. Why anybody believes them about anything is beyond me. But clearly, that is what's going on because everything is getting more expensive except gold and silver. And I know that's very frustrating to people who own gold and silver. But you know what? At least you don't own Bitcoin because while gold is at least up 3.5%, Bitcoin is going down and it's going way down. And at some point, people are going to recognize this. Like, look at the oil price. Oil was down a bit on the day. But it was another up week for oil. Oil closed at $104.69, up 40% on the year. So even with all this economic weakness, the price of oil didn't go down. It went up, even with the stock market crashing because of a weak economy. And some of the concerns over a weak economy have to do with the Fed hiking rates. Because clearly, once the Fed does hike rates, the economy will be weaker 
because interest rates will be a bigger drag on the economy because we're carrying so much debt that is going to be so much more expensive to service. Everybody is going to pay the price because everybody was at the debt party. Federal government, corporations, households, everybody is loaded up with debt thanks to the Fed. The Fed liquored everybody up at this gigantic party, and now they think they can take the liquor away and the party is going to continue. That everybody is high as a kite on the Fed's liquor or the Fed's heroin, whatever you want to call it, and now the Fed is going to come clean. We're going to withdraw all this stimulus. The bar is shut. Yet somehow the Fed doesn't think the party is going to end. Well, the party was all about the Fed's monetary heroin. It reminds me of when George Bush was trying to explain the 2008 financial crisis. And he said the problem was Wall Street was drunk. And I always pointed out, yes, Bush was right. That was one of the few things he was right about. Wall Street was drunk. In fact, Main Street was drunk. The whole country was drunk. The problem was Bush never identified why everybody was so drunk, where they got that alcohol. They got it from Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan was the bartender who liquored everybody up, and that's why everybody acted so recklessly, and that's why we had the 2008 financial crisis. The problem is, when Greenspan retired, another bartender took his place, and then another, and then another, and they continued to up the doses, giving out more and more free alcohol, to everybody on Wall Street and Main Street. And remember, as interest rates were really low, everybody kept saying, well, let's take advantage of it. We need to borrow money when rates are low. That was what was justifying a lot of big budget deficits. They kept saying, well, interest rates are really low. We need to go out and borrow money because how can we turn this down? Rates are so low, we have to go out and borrow money while we can. And I kept saying, well, just because something is cheap or free doesn't mean you take it. If someone starts giving away free heroin, do you say, oh my God, look, I get all this free heroin. I might as well inject it because it's free. No, if it's bad, you don't take it. It doesn't matter if you're getting it for nothing. You're doing damage. And I was always pointing out the danger of borrowing all this cheap money because I said it's not always going to be cheap. These loans are eventually going to have to be repaid. They're eventually going to have to be serviced. And what happens when interest rates go up? Well, no one cared. Nobody asked those questions, right? Because the party was fun and no one wanted to leave it. Nobody was asking these questions in the days leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. And no one is asking these questions now, but we're headed for a much bigger crisis this time than last. The only difference is the Fed's not going to be able to bail anybody out this time because the Fed is going to be the epicenter of this crisis because it's not just going to be a garden variety financial crisis. It's going to be a sovereign debt crisis and it's going to be a U.S. dollar crisis. And before that happens, you better load up the boat on real inflation hedges like gold and silver while you can and get as much money as you can out of the U.S. dollar, out of overpriced U.S. financial assets, U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, and build yourself a portfolio of good quality value dividend-paying foreign stocks. (music) 